This episode is brought to you in partnership with London-based Crew Cafe Coffee. To know me is to know that I love coffee. There's something so special about that first coffee of the day. It's not even a routine for me anymore. It's more of a ritual. But we all know that not all coffees are equal and life is way too short for bad coffee. I'm sure lots of you listening will be familiar with Crew Cafe Coffee. But if you haven't yet discovered it, let me tell you, this is game-changing coffee. From sweet and floral Arabicas grown in Central America to bold and deep Robustas drenched by India's monsoon rains, their coffees are carefully chosen to unlock a whole world of flavour. Their coffee is so good, I've actually stopped drinking coffee with milk, which I never thought I would. And of course, you can still enjoy a milky coffee, but I just find the flavour of the coffee is so good, I don't need to add milk to mine anymore. And much like with wine, and believe me, I am not a wine expert, but you can really taste the different notes from light and bright fruits, dark chocolate and rich earthy ones. It's a whole new world, I'm telling you. They also happen to be 100% organic, B Corp and fair trade. They pay an additional premium to the farmers, which then gets reinvested back into the local community to pay for water supplies, schools and health centres. So this is a company that's creating not only a better cup of coffee for you, but also the farming communities and the planet. What's not to love? This is coffee for connoisseurs. You can find them online at crewcafe.com where you can currently get 50% off their discovery box. That's C-R-U-K-A-F-E dot com. They're also available at Waitrose. Thank you very much to Crew Cafe. Hi, I'm Margie Nomura and welcome to the Desert Island Dishes podcast. This is the podcast where every week I ask my guests to choose their seven Desert Island Dishes. These range from finding out about the dish that most reminds them of their childhood, the best dish they've ever eaten, and of course, the last dish they would choose to eat before being cast off to the desert island. The question is, what would you choose as your last meal? Hi, I hope you're all very well. We have a lovely episode for you today with the brilliant John Watts. Lots of you, I'm sure, will be familiar with John from his amazingly successful social media or his regular TV appearances as his career really goes from strength to strength. But it's the story of how John got to where he is today that I really wanted to share. Food and cooking mean so many different things to different people. You could grow up in a family obsessed with food and all that comes with it, or you might not, and still find your way to cooking later in life. And cooking can provide opportunity, and it's a passion that you can find at any stage of life. You could grow up in a world of privilege and opportunity and still never quite make anything of yourself. Or you can feel lost as a teenager and get caught up with the wrong crowd, and yet you can turn your life around and it's never too late for that. And John has done exactly that, which I think is very inspiring. His first book has just come out, which looks brilliant. His recipes are easy and delicious. And actually the day after we recorded this episode, I was sitting on the bus and the women in front of me were planning what they were going to cook that week. And they were raving about John and his recipes, which I loved overhearing. I do hope you enjoyed today's episode. Let us know what you think. And without further ado, here is John's Desert Island Dishes. 
My guest today is John Watts. You may well know John from his friendly down-to-earth cooking videos online where he has amassed a huge following of avid fans. But what you may not know is that John is where he is today through a lot of hard work and determination to completely turn his life around. He left school at the age of 16 with no idea what he wanted to do. He found himself hanging out with the wrong crowd and was constantly getting into trouble. In 2008, he was sentenced to a Young Offenders Institute, and he said he had two choices, to spend 23 hours a day in a cell or to sign up for everything he could. He signed up for the Duke of Edinburgh's award, and in that moment, he says he changed the entire course of his life. John became the first person ever to earn a gold Duke of Edinburgh award whilst in prison, receiving the award from Prince Philip himself. He then went on to work for Jamie Oliver, where his passion for food was really ignited. And now, 16 years on, he runs a successful food business working as a chef and has just released his first cookbook. Welcome, John. Thank you so much for having me. It's always interesting listening to someone introduce me because it just feels like you're talking about someone else. I'm like, cool, who is this guy? I'm like, wow. me. I was going to ask you that, like, could you ever have imagined 16 years ago what your life would look like now? I I really love sort of um, sitting down with people, chatting about it with a glass of wine and sort of taking myself back because I don't do it very often. I'm very sort of forward thinking. And when I do think about it, I'm like, just wow. Like, I mean, 16 years. So I think every five year period has always been a huge sort of monumental period for me. And uh, to, to just imagine I was even halfway to where I am now would have been absolutely incredible. Yeah, it's amazing to think, isn't it? And there are so many things that I want to talk to you about. But I'm thinking that with the gold Duke of Edinburgh under your belt, being cast off to a desert island is going to be a breeze. <laughs> yeah, that definitely ignited another passion in me as well. So, I, you know, food is number one, <laughs> but mountains and, you know, being adventurous and getting outdoors is number two. So I would jump at the getting onto a desert island. <laughs> I think I'd enjoy it for a couple of weeks. I'm quite introverted as well. Okay, but a couple of weeks might be the cutoff. Yeah, I mean, it's going to become a point, isn't there? <laughs> <laughs> Let's dive straight into the first desert island mm. dish. What's the dish that most reminds you of your childhood? Do you know what? This is a really difficult question for me to answer. And I do not have that stereotypical you know, answer that everybody has. Everyone in food will have like a memory of their grandma's cooking, their mum or their dad or somewhere they used to go, something that reminds them of their childhood. For me, food was really not a big part. You know, I've been thinking about it a lot over this last week. And honestly, it's angel delight. (gasps) I know, I know a lot of people don't even know what angel delight is. But you know, for anyone that doesn't know, it's that how, how do you describe it in you know, a processed powder that you mix with milk and pop it in the fridge and it sets into like a jelly type thing like a mousse yeah. but it's magic it has to be butterscotch though doesn't it 100 percent, yeah I don't mind the chocolate one um but but yeah it's all about the butterscotch one I will say you know for me when I do think about food when I was younger we did always have that sort of family thing we would all be at the dinner table at six o'clock having dinner but the actual food was just not a part of it. Like my dad, even today, he's getting a bit better now, but he's very much a food is fuel kind of person. So I didn't grow up around where people are foodies and they really enjoy and take care over what they're cooking and eating. But that's interesting, isn't it? That even though food wasn't central to it, you did still all sit down as a family and it was like a moment of of being together. 
Yeah, and something that I took for granted. I think when I think back, you know, that was such a lovely time and something that I think is quite important in like a family unit. But, you know, at the time when you're young, it's you want to be out with your friends. Yeah. You don't want to be called in yeah. and playing your games. <laughs> you know, it's the worst thing to have to go down for dinner. Yeah, yeah at the time it's <laughs> so annoying. And then when you look back, it's like, oh, those were the best, <laughs> those were the best times. You said that you didn't really enjoy school and you dropped out at 16 as soon as you realised that it wasn't compulsory. At the time, you've described feeling very lost and confused about what you were going to do. And you say that you had no drive or ambition and you were at war with yourself, but also the world around you. Can you tell us a little bit more about that time? Wow. Are those my words? I think they are. I don't know where you've got yeah. those from, but <laughs> yeah. I, I recognise them. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think it was a funny time because... I mean, those words sort of sum it up perfectly, just lost, frustrated. I felt like I was worthy of being someone and doing good things and finding a passion. But it just, I think where I grew up, there wasn't really a lot of opportunities. There wasn't much guidance from the school as well. I remember feeling quite let down. I think misunderstood is a good way to put it. You know, I'd miss out on a lot of opportunities through getting a lot of detentions. I just think no one gave me any sort of time so I just felt like essentially you know not many people cared about me and that just led to me having those sorts of feelings and I think when you're young and you just don't know where to go where to turn and that was very much what it was so yeah I left school and started working but it's the same sort of thing I was just you know at that age with no qualifications I was just going into dead-end jobs places where you know making minimum wage for hard labour and uh, nothing exciting and when I was faced with older groups of people and people that were involved in you know the not very nice things which essentially you could call sort of gang related things that just appealed to me because it was a place where I felt understood mm. it was a place where I felt like I belonged somewhere for the first time and yeah that sort of escalated. Mm. It's so difficult isn't it because school <laughs> School is such an unrealistic representation of life, and yet it only has this very rigid way of determining whether you are a somebody and whether you're going to succeed. And it's so wrong, isn't it? Because who cares about <laughs> the stuff that you learn there? But it can be really uninspiring. And I, I wondered when I was reading your story, when you look back now, what could have happened differently that would have meant that the turn of events would have been different? I, th I think it comes down to just guidance. I mm. really, really dislike blaming anyone or anything for how I ended up or where I ended up. I mean, I think a huge part of why I am where I am now is because I've taken responsibility myself. But, I, you know, at that age, you are a child. And I think some of the responsibility does come on to other people and other things. And I just think a little bit of guidance. I mean, one thing I noticed at school was I would miss out on, you know, when you're picking your classes and things, and I would miss out on all the ones that I had chosen to do because mm. I think my last name was ended in a W. So if I think back to oh. nobody wanted to do graphics, everyone wanted to do uh, cooking or uh, the woodwork when it came to the technical ones. And um, I just remember being at school and looking around the class and everybody's last name was a W or at the end of the alphabet. And I think it was a matter of just like, okay, we've given everyone what they wanted. Now we've got these people left, we'll chuck them in that class. And that happened with a few different classes. So I was away from the people that I, you know, liked being with, doing the classes that I wasn't really very interested in. So I think that was just the first 
part of being essentially forgotten, I would say. God, so if you've got a name ending in W, you should double barrel it with a A, it's <laughs> ASAP. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. It's it's never one person's responsibility, but it's when like a collection of things happen. I think it's when it leads to someone feeling the way that it made you feel. That's ultimately the worst thing that can happen for a young person, because when you're 16, you feel very grown up. But now that we're older, we 16 is so young, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, I was talking to a friend who's a psychologist recently, and she was saying about how uh, the brain isn't fully formed until your sort of late 20s, especially the sort of frontal lobe. So in young people, they might feel mature, but I think the frontal lobe deals with the sort of decision making and things. So, mm. you know, if you are made to feel a certain way and, you know, your brain's still going through that sort of maturing process, then, you know, it's a very difficult place to be. And the decisions yeah. you make are not the ones that you'd make when you're an adult thinking straight. No, that that makes a lot of sense. Let's pause there and talk about the second desert island dish. What was the first dish you learned to cook? Right. So, I mean, I was in the prison doing the MVQ in professional cookery. So I was learning to cook all the basics, a bechamel sauce, apple crumbles and pies and all sorts of, you know, your classic dishes. But the first dish that I mastered is for capture. And that was when I ended up cooking in a restaurant. So, I mean, my real passion for food came when I started in the restaurant and I was around passionate chefs and I was seeing ingredients I'd never seen before. And there was just an adrenaline and I was put on focaccia duty. So I was making focaccia every single morning. And do you know who used to come in quite often back in those days was Gennaro Cantaldo. The Italian stallion. I <laughs> thought you were going to say that. And, uh, you know, for anyone that's seen him, he's usually on Saturday Kitchens and he's very eccentric. And, oh, he's, he's great on TV, isn't he? I think it's really entertaining. When you're in the kitchen with him, he's great as well. But, oh, my God, the pressure of making this bread around him and every time he'd come in. And I th- it was just incredible, really, especially looking back, being taught something like that by him. And he used to tell me, you know, treat it like a treat the dough like a baby and be very delicate with it and and I used to just be really proud of every good batch of focaccia that I made so yeah I think that was that's what I would call you know the first real dish that I mastered what how many times do you think you have to make something like focaccia to really master it (laughs) uh that's a tough question I think yeah a good few hundred times so you know being Mm. very new to it back then it took that time to sort of develop that uh, naturalness, maybe. And Jamie Oliver, I mean, he was such a huge part of culture when we were growing up. Was he someone that you were very aware of as a teenager before you went to work with him? I mean, before going into prison, I definitely knew who he was. (laughs) I mean, he was famous, wasn't he, for ruining the school dinners a a bit before that. No one was ever very keen (laughs) on him. (laughs) What, because he got rid of turkey twizzlers? Yeah, I think... People sort of in my in my age bracket now are still angry about turkey twizzlers. It's funny. <laughs> <laughs> I was never a big fan of the turkey twizzlers anyway. Um, but yeah, I just think, I mean, he was, is and was, you know, what the biggest name in the industry. So he was definitely aware. And I did, I can't remember when I became aware, about 15, but I think it 
was during my time in prison and um, it was mentioned to me a few times when I was cooking and it was always the goal to try and get in there. So it was difficult to get into 15 uh, because I was already in custody, but they offered Mm. me to go into the chain of restaurants, which is where, you know, a certain select few people took me under their wing and essentially nurtured me and uh, gave me an opportunity showing me, nurturing me. And I'm so thankful to them for that now. It essentially taught me work ethic. Can you teach work ethic? I think you can. Mm. Um, little things as well, like I was going out on day release from the prison. So I was on a resettlement unit, which was kind of like an open prison, not inside, but I was able to go out in that sense. So they would release me at half okay. six in the morning and I would go to the restaurant, work for 10 hours, go back. And um, Ian, the head chef there, he used to get me in an hour earlier than everybody else. He'd get me to iron my chef whites and stuff. So I was in the kitchen an hour before everyone, presentable. And then I would be able to get ahead of people. I think it just taught me about, you know, being prepared, being there mm. and looking after yourself. You know, And I just think it sort of taught me that sort of organisation and that work ethic, which I think has stuck with me today and is a big part of how I've been able to sort of grow into the person that I am today. When I was reading about you, you talk about your time as a 16-year-old and you say that you did always have in the back of your mind this feeling that one day you would be a success. But I wondered at that point, what did success look like? Cool. At 16, I'm not sure quite what success looked like because I just had no idea. And when I sort of mentioned that, I think what I meant, I just felt like I was worthy of something, like I had Mm. a lot to give. It's really difficult to explain. It was that feeling that led to the frustration because I didn't know how to get into anything that I wanted to do. I didn't understand about university or education. I didn't actually know that that was possible for me. It's only as I've got older that I realised that actually a university education is accessible for a lot of people. But to me, it was something that I thought was reserved for for rich people or you know really clever people let's pause there and talk about the third desert island dish what's the best dish you've ever eaten so the best dish i've ever eaten and this is going back to that restaurant setting again and um you know not being a foodie as a child then being in a young offenders where the food is there's not a lot of budget there it's awful okay so being in that restaurant setting and i remember getting my first bowl of of star food, which was a spaghetti bolognese with crunchy pangrattata. So uh, have you heard of pangrattata, which is yeah, the herby breadcrumbs with garlic mm. and uh, they call it poor man's parmesan in Italy. Oh, really? Is that what they say? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, for the people that couldn't afford parmesan, they would use these crunchy breadcrumbs, which just adds so much to the dish. And I just remember sitting down. I didn't eat a lot, actually, when I was there, because for anyone that's worked in a restaurant, they'll know it's hard labor and you don't really drink or eat for most of the day you're on your feet and you're you know you're essentially trying to be a superhuman and I remember at the end of a really really long day sitting down and somebody gave me the bolognese and I was like wow this is the best thing I've ever eaten and it's all to do with that sort of circumstance isn't it because I haven't had good food I was going to list the best food I've ever eaten I think would be Le Manoir in Oxfordshire, two Michelin star, Raymond Blanc's restaurant, you know, if I was going for the best food. But when it comes down to like the atmosphere and the experience, 
you know, the best dish was sitting down and eating that bolognese at the end of a hard few days. It wasn't on the first day, it was a few days. So, you know, I, I would have to go for that. Something about your story when I was reading about it, I don't want to overplay this, but I do think it's very admirable because when you arrived in prison, you obviously were at a crossroads. I was thinking it, it would have been very easy just to kind of give in to a feeling of helplessness almost and accept your situation. And that's exactly the opposite of what you went about doing by signing up for all the things you did and all these courses that you did. Was there ever a doubt in your mind that that was how you were going to approach it? No, I mean, I was very lucky for this reason. So the offence that happened that put me in prison happened in July of 2007. And I wasn't actually put into custody until January 2008. And during that time, a lot happened. My life and the life of people around me changed drastically in not a pleasant way. And I very much at that point realised, okay, I'm doing the wrong thing. I'm going down the wrong path and something needs to change. So I was able to accept that I was going to be in that position. I was going to be in custody and certainly for a couple of years at least. So I approached it with that mindset. Whereas for a lot of people, if, if you know, something happens and you're arrested and you're put into custody the next morning, you're straight away just thrown in. You know, it's like a tornado of emotions mm. and things. I was able to walk into the, the dock in court with a bag of clothes and things ready to go. And I think that helped me massively. It's, it's something that a lot of people can't do. And it was just down to the circumstances surrounding what was going on with me at the time. So yeah, I mean, going in there with that mindset already, I just was super driven to like make something of myself. I felt like such a failure. I was a failure. I felt like such a failure. I was so ashamed. You know, I was just embarrassed for my family to have to be associated with me. I felt like I had to do something to make amends for it. Taking the opportunity to do the Duke of Edinburgh was a moment that you've said ultimately changed the entire course of the rest of your life. And everybody has these moments when they look back at their life and you, you may not be aware of them as they're happening, but you see when you look back these certain decisions that led you in a particular direction, whether it's good or bad. Did it feel momentous in that moment when you decided to sign up? Did you feel like this was really going to be something that would change things for you? Yeah, I think definitely. I never, ever expected to go as far as I did with the Duke of Edinburgh's Awards. And I remember it was funded by Reading Football Club and some of their people came in and told us about it and what we can expect. And there was about 100 young inmates in that room and they only had space for 15 people. And they were talking about how it could affect you and, you know, their dream. I remember one of them saying, my dream is to see some of you at the palace getting your gold award and I just remember I am quite big on the law of attraction and I just remember thinking about it at the time and picturing that being me even though at that time I did not think it was going to be possible I was one of the 15 picked to do it again down to circumstances it's the length of your sentence um, the other courses that you're doing in there how well you've been behaved in there it just came down to so many different factors and I was lucky enough to be one of those 15 to start working towards it. I think the moment I started, I felt like I'd already achieved something. And it was already something to phone home about and say, I'm taking part in the Duke of Edinburgh's awards and I'm working towards my bronze. So it's just that first step towards what I was talking about, you know, making amends and 
being able mm. to, you know, make my family proud of me rather than ashamed of me. And what does the gold involve? Because it's pretty mega, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, bronze, silver and gold, they ha- they're split up into sections. So you've got four sections in the bronze, silver and gold. You've got an extra section for the gold. Okay. For the four sections. Let's see if I can remember on the spot. Uh, so you, <laughs> you have the skill section, obviously, which I went for cooking. You've got the volunteering. So I was a listener, mm. which was basically prisoners trained by the Samaritans to be Samaritans. So you're there to take a call from someone and in prison it is face to face. And you listen to someone who is going through, it could be anything from just missing a family member to feeling suicidal. And sometimes it would be really, really dark stuff. And I think being involved in that in particular helped to grow me as a person because I was first of all given responsibility to be in that situation and you're living with these people and you have to keep these things confidential and I think having that responsibility and being trusted was a big deal but then also just learning empathy and realizing that everybody no matter who they are where they come from goes through difficult emotions and hard times and just to be able to help people as Mm. well so that was really sort of beneficial to my personal growth there was the expedition so typically you'd be stomping up hills in the mud and camping out for the silver and gold I was able to get out on the temporary license and do it I did the silver sections but left the expedition until later on when I was able to go out and then sort of did them close together so we did have to be a bit tactile in that sense but for the bronze we basically did this thing called the jailers challenge so we had to create this team building challenge that went all around the sort of grounds of the prison and you're just sort of learning how to work with people you're learning communication skills all the simple skills that I think someone like me lacked and it just boosts your self-confidence your self-esteem which are all the things that support yourself going forward um so it's all been really beneficial I know you said you don't ever like to assign blame but it it's all of those things are things that school should have been giving you aren't they I know you are right it's just yeah I like to take responsibility and put it all on myself but when you were at school if you'd have been offered the chance to do the Duke of Edinburgh would it have appealed to you in in different circumstances Uh, actually no uh, because it has or certainly had a certain reputation and it wouldn't have been the cool thing to do um ah okay yeah so yeah, that's interesting, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, in the circles I was in, it just, you know, it wouldn't have been the thing to do. However, I think when you're in somewhere like being in custody, all those things, they go out the window. It's all about bettering yourself, taking the opportunity. And it was the, you know, one of, if not the best thing I ever did. We've had many terrible segues on this podcast, John, but I think this might, <laughs> might be my worst. We're going to talk about the fourth desert island dish now. John, what is your favourite sandwich? Another tough one. <laughs> I've gone for roast beef, caramelised onion, and a bit of rocket in ciabatta. That's a great sandwich. Yeah, I just think, you know, you can pair it with mustard or horseradish or something like that. Have you ever heard of the six things that a sandwich is supposed to be? Yes. It's three things, but the opposite. So I believe it's hot, cold, sweet, sour, crunchy, soft. Yeah, that's it. You nailed it. 
<laughs> but it's true when you think and, and and not just sandwiches I guess that's kind of true of dishes as well like if you're creating a dish or thinking about why something works it's because there's always this contrast and that's what makes something so satisfying to eat that is a great sandwich because that's the kind of good sandwich that you can make just as it is but then it's also you can form it as leftovers can't you and then that's makes it even better yeah, absolutely what are your thoughts on the boxing day sandwich as in like turkey and stuffing yeah love it yeah, yeah. <laughs> but are you of the opinion that it's better than the christmas lunch itself <laughs> or... i mean the christmas lunch just gets overhyped isn't it when something gets hyped up so much it never lives up to the expectations which is why i think most people's favorite ever meal is something that's not really extreme people's favorite meals are always just so simple and it's what everyone always just has to remember when you're having friends over people it's about the occasion You've described the time that you met Prince Philip at a reception for young people receiving their Duke of Edinburgh awards. That must have been very surreal. Yeah, so I, I, I was lucky enough. I've met him three times. And the first time I didn't really recognise the significance, actually. And um, I was at this event for the Duke of Edinburgh's award and he sort of did the rounds and he asked me what I did for the expedition. And I told him, oh, I was in prison. I uh, did this and this. And he asked me if we were all attached by ball and chain, which was quite <laughs> funny, you know, stomping around the mountains attached by ball and chain. And then I met him, it can't have been very long after. And this is all on camera because I was lucky enough that they were filming me as part of a documentary on him for the BBC. So I'm able to look back. Otherwise, I'd probably think it was a dream and it didn't happen mm. but I was getting my gold award and I was with two officers from the prison who had taken me through it and my dad was allowed there and I was only I was still two weeks away from being officially released and uh, again he spoke to me and this wasn't the BBC saying can you speak to him they had no power like that <laughs> they very much just put the camera around and tried like hoped that he was going to talk to me and uh, that time he asked me about my service and what I did so I told him I worked alongside the Samaritans and I think that time, because the BBC were filming it and the producer sort of told me a lot of Prince Philip's background and the sort of historical part. And that's where I was like, oh, wow, this is quite a big deal that I'm sort of meeting this guy, especially coming from where I'd come from and what I'd just been through. But yeah, really, really incredible experience. And like I said, I'm so glad it's on film so that I can actually be like, because otherwise mm. it'd be one of those things you're like, that really happened yeah not to put too fine a point on it but that obviously was very meaningful to you and amazing but it must have also been quite meaningful to him like you were the first person to ever receive their gold awards whilst being in prison mm. and ultimately that's what he set the awards up for that must have been an amazing moment for him as well yeah I think so I think he used to play it down a lot the whole scheme I think he used to play it down mm. but but yeah, I think it had the desired effect. I've often described the Duke of Edinburgh's award as well, like a sort of template for life. I mean, when I was in custody, you get all these um, offending behaviour problems ranging from anger management to enhanced thinking skills. And all the things that these people going through that should be going through. But it's all done in a very mm. sort of um, you know classroom environment where people don't want to be there. Whereas something like the Duke of Edinburgh's Wood, you want to do it, you're achieving something, and it's just helping you develop and grow, which is exactly what it was brought out to do, into a good member of society. 
So I hope he was proud. I mean, the third time that I met him was I was at a big charity event and I wasn't supposed to talk. And they put a video of me up on the screen. But then a famous comedian sort of introduced me onto the stage. David Walliams, it was. And he made a comment about <laughs> he made a comment about me being too shy to talk. It wasn't that wasn't the reason I was told not not necessarily to say anything they were like oh just go up there it was like 600 people in the audience we're going to play the video they can give a round of applause just so they see you and he made a comment like that and I was like oh no I'm going to say something now because he sort of he put it on me a little bit and uh, I just remember looking down and I could see Prince Philip with a big grin on his face and I think he was probably quite happy that I'd been like no I'll show you I will say something God, John that's made <laughs> me feel like instantly hot and sweaty thinking about going up in front of 600 people not having thought <laughs> you'd say anything and then having to say something that's amazing let's pause there and talk about the fifth desert island dish what's the dish you eat the most often does pasta count as a dish Yes, definitely. What's your go-to sauce? How do you have it? The, the thing I love about pasta is it's so versatile, isn't it? You can have anything. But I have to say, I think a carbonara is my favourite, mm. you know, go-to pasta because it's so quick. And I think, you know, a lot of people are intimidated by the egg scrambling and things like that. But I think when you get the knack and you can make it, it's just so quick, easy, delicious. It's got a bit of everything. When you went to work for Jamie Oliver, you've described that time as really the moment that ignited your passion for cooking. But I wondered, like, the whole restaurant environment. I know you were the first to get in every day, and you've talked about that a little bit, but did you instantly love the restaurant itself? Honestly, I mean, when I was in custody and I was learning to cook, uh, doing the MVQ, it was only something to give me an opportunity, to give me a job. That was all it was. From probably the first minute I walked in that restaurant, I was in love. It was just everything about it. The smell, the passion coming off of people. Like I said earlier, the adrenaline around the place, the ingredients. I always remember walking in the big walk-in fridge and just seeing stacks and stacks of fresh herbs that I didn't know existed. And I'd be like smelling each one. It's like, wow. Because <laughs> I was used to any dried herbs before that. And I just remember always being like, you know, oregano and mixed herbs and thyme and rosemary when they're dried. They're all very similar. It's like, what is this? But when you've got the fresh herbs yeah. there, you're like, wow. And then I just think it's so incredible how something can grow from a seed and then you have this beautiful ingredient that you can use. And I was learning about the different ingredients and the quality. You know, a tomato off the shelf from a supermarket is not the same as a tomato that's come from the mountains or the hills of Italy you know, it's completely different. And when you're using the right produce, you can just create incredible things. And I just, mm. yeah, I fell in love. I off, I think I described it once as that was where the fire was lit inside of me and it's still raging. <laughs> I think some people go through life and they never find that thing. So it's amazing that you found it at the point that you did. And yeah, you were learning two things at once because I think the ingredient thing is, is one thing which is kind of mind-blowing. And then the actual process of cooking, which is also, I always say this, and I think it always sounds really cheesy, but it is kind of magical when you first start learning to cook and you just turn ingredients into a dish and it's watching that whole process process happens. So yeah, it's, it's incredible that that happened all at the same time. Your first cookbook is now out, which is very exciting. Mm. Was writing a cookbook something that you ever dreamt about? I think from the moment I was sort of into cooking, I think when I really started enjoying it, it was always working under Jamie Oliver. 
uh, and obviously what he's done in I don't know he's probably the biggest cookbook writer ever in the world so I think I sort of looked at that and thought you know that's the dream that's the ultimate goal it was one I said I didn't know how it would come about but I think I always knew that at one day I would have a cookbook have a recipe book and I would have loved to have done it sooner but I just I don't know I didn't really know how to go about it and it was really it was the pandemic pushing me into sharing recipes on social media which has catapulted me into that world where it's become something that is now reality. Oh, that's so interesting, because obviously you have this enormous following online now, but that was really spurred on by the pandemic. Oh, absolutely. So I was cooking for quite a few celebrities and things before the pandemic, and I was catering. I had my own business, and I was catering for all sorts of events. So I had a fairly good following. I think it's about 9,000. And when the pandemic hit, and uh, everything I'd been working for disappeared, like the whole industry collapsed. And I was just cooking for one client in this most beautiful kitchen. I started to just film the recipes I was doing because I had so much time and I posted it and I noticed it was, you know, being engaged with a lot and people enjoyed it. People were asking for more. So I just carried on. Um, Believe it or not, the first recipe I filmed for social media was seared scallops with truffle and porcini. (laughs) <laughs> which cost about just the ingredients about sixty pounds to feed two people. Very relatable, John. Yeah, and it, I just find it so funny how it's gone from from that to to now. You know, these really quick and easy dishes that anyone can make at home. So. I guess because with food media, there are like two sides to it, aren't there? There's like the aspirational side of oh, that's something I would never cook. It's expensive. It's difficult. I don't know how I would do that, but I want to watch how it's done. Yeah. And the other side is like show me something that I can easily make. So you've had both sides of the spectrum yeah that's definitely the side that I have adapted to become is that easy to make recipes and I think that's why my Mm. following has grown so much and it's you know I just hit 500k today half a million followers on Instagram almost half a million on TikTok and it's just from sharing these videos that I enjoy making and that's the fun thing I enjoy making them I enjoy the engagement that comes with making them imagine all of those people standing in a stadium <laughs> I used to think about it like that not to freak you I, <laughs> not to freak you out <laughs> as it was growing I used to think about it like uh oh it fills Stamford Bridge now which is 45,000 oh I've nearly got Wembley wow I can yeah. fill Wembley now I can fill two Wembley and now it's like oh my goodness <laughs> Life has changed so much over the last 16 years. What does the future hold in terms of what's left on the list of things for you to achieve? Would you like to open your own restaurant? Yeah, I mean, leading up to 2020, um, or, you know, at the beginning of 2020, that was the plan to open somewhere. Uh, It was actually going to be a deli and a cookery school. And I had investment and the premises and the contract was in front of me. And then, you know, the uh, COVID happened and everything shut down and in a way I'm quite grateful because I mean it just wasn't the right time I think for me forget outside circumstances and what was going on in the world but just wasn't really the right time and I've sort of been put on this path now where I'm really quite happy and I feel quite fulfilled and there's a lot of potential but in terms of a restaurant in the future absolutely my cousin's a big foodie we grew up together we're the same age and neither of us were foodies growing up but now he's a huge foodie as well And he would quite like to open a restaurant with me. I think at some point we're going to make it happen. That's amazing because that's what everyone always says about business partners. If you have a sibling or a best friend or a relation, they actually, they always are going to make the best business partners. So that feels very exciting. 
We're on to the sixth desert island dish. What is your go-to dinner party dish? This is the easiest question for me to answer. Beef Wellington. A lot of people will shy away from it. People that like a challenge will jump at it. And it's a difficult dish to perfect. What's your secret? (laughs) I've got a few different secrets. I mean, I would always sear the fillet and make the mushroom duck cells the night before and even wrap it the night before as well. So wrap the beef with the mushroom and sort of parma ham or whatever you're using. Wrap it quite tightly and it almost sets in the fridge overnight then wrap it in the pastry but then I'll also wrap the pastry quite tightly to secure it then in the fridge again so that it's all set and secure and then onto a hot tray which is quite important Um, there's a few steps as well sorry I missed out things like your mushrooms really making sure there's no liquid in them because you what you want is a crisp bottom and I will get it every single time without fail nowadays After making hundreds and hundreds of beef wellingtons as a private chef, it was always the most popular dish. I think because it's not something that people can make easily and it's um, not something you can eat out often either. Not many places Mm. have it. So people would choose it quite often. So I feel like I've perfected it. Um, And now it's also something that if you do know how to make, you can get it ready beforehand. So having it in the fridge, brushing it with egg wash, and then it's ready, you know, it's in the oven and and it's ready. So it's not like you're slaving away in the kitchen to get something ready while people are enjoying themselves. It's something you can prepare beforehand and it's the ultimate showstopper. Well, yeah, if I turned up to my friend's house and they served me beef wellington, I would be very happy. I think it's scary because the fillet is such an expensive cut of meat. I think people are so scared of overcooking it. I remember one of the first private chefing jobs I ever did, they wanted fillet for 50 people and I turned up and they only had an arga and I I don't know what the temperatures of an arga... Oh my God, (laughs) It's all... It was so stressful. Oh, I can I feel your pain. I always <laughs> I always find it funny because people who have an arga, they're so excited to get you in their kitchen. They're like, come over, you can cook in the arga. And I'm like, oh no. No. I think they're great. They look incredible. And uh, I love them. But gorgeous. They look gorgeous. Yeah. But they're all different temperatures. <laughs> Every arga is yeah. very, very different. It's not practical. Um, yeah, very stressful. <laughs> no, you're definitely not for a beef wellington. When you do a dinner party, do you often do a pudding? Yeah, quite often. And the um, most popular one is the chocolate fondant. They melt in the middle, which again, fairly straightforward. You can get them made the day before and then into the oven eight to ten minutes and and they're ready. But do you think it shows like MasterChef that have scarred people? Because the fondant is actually quite an easy pudding. Yeah. But I think we've watched so many dry cake ones on MasterChef that maybe people are scared. Yeah, that's just, yeah, it's all for theatrical effect, isn't it? <laughs> if in doubt, undercook. Yeah, you, you can undercook them as well and they're, they're usually yeah. fine. The white chocolate ones are difficult. Uh, I've had those split on me a couple of times. But. Yeah, I don't think I've ever had a white chocolate. Fondant. Yeah, it, because of the cocoa, the low cocoa content, um, they're quite difficult. But you can make them work. But temperamental, I probably wouldn't do it often. I'd do it more for myself rather okay. than uh, in a high pressured <laughs> environment. <laughs> on Desert Island Dishes, we have a cookbook corner. So I'd love to know what is your most treasured cookbook. So, uh, Cooking with the Master Chef by Michelle Rue Junior. and. I've never actually cooked anything from it, but I met him at an event, one of the Duke of Edinburgh Award events, just before my release. And he just gave me like a few sort of words of wisdom, which to him won't have meant anything, Mm. but to me it meant a lot. 
And so the first cookbook I bought when I was released and I was in my own place and I was able to cook for myself was Cooking with the Master Chef. And then uh, fairly recently, I met him again for the third time, actually. But I was given that book as part of this um, campaign that I was working on and I got it signed. So I think now that is my most treasured cookbook. What were his words of advice? Do you know what? I can't even remember. <laughs> but it just, it felt really meaningful yeah, at the time. at the time, I just remember feeling, you know, I'd seen him on MasterChef and, you know, to see him in real life. I don't think I'd ever seen a famous person before that day. So to see someone who I'd known from, you know, the, the world of media and to talk to me and essentially encourage me, it just, it meant a lot to me. I think it's so interesting because so often people's stories do have these interactions with people and it doesn't have to be a celebrity but it's amazing how you have these interactions it might not have meant anything to the other person but to you it means so much and I think like it's just a lesson that we can all learn from because you just never know what impact a tiny little moment is going to have on someone else's life particularly young people (laughs) okay we're on to the final seventh desert island dish John, what is the last dish you would choose to eat before being cast off to the desert island? <laughs> I want a really decent steak cooked well. Not well done, but cooked well. What cut would I go for? Probably a nice Wagyu ribeye with mac and cheese, maybe a truffle mac and cheese, push the boat out, triple cooked duck fat chips, creamed spinach, you know, carb overload, get ready for the incoming weeks of starvation. <laughs> And then it's got to be some butterscotch angel delight. Oh, it has to be. It has to be. <laughs> Have you tried making your own version of an angel delight? <laughs> no, I haven't actually. I might. That might be something I look into. Let's do it as a collab. <laughs> <laughs> John, those are your desert island dishes. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. So there we have it, another delicious day of Desert Island Dishes. Don't forget that you can rate, review and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. It really does make such a difference. It boosts the show in the charts and helps others to find it, which is great and means that I can keep bringing it to you each week. If you don't already, then come and follow me on Instagram at Desert Island Dishes. And you can also sign up for the brand new newsletter, Dinner Tonight, at DesertIslandDishes.co. Thank you very much for listening and I'll see you next week. Bye.